This program is sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy. And I am the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. I want to start off first by thanking some of my listeners. It is hard to know if anyone's listening. I'm sure there are people that tune in on the radio at 4 on Tuesday and listen to the program. But Sunday morning here at the North Valley Church of Christ, we had a couple of folks show up. I'm not going to name names. Don't worry. Uh, but they showed up to, because they had heard the radio program and, and they wanted to visit with us. And I was so thankful to meet them and hear that the folks are, are, are hearing the lessons here in the, the program and are encouraged by it. In fact, encouraged so much so that they came to visit. And I really hope, if you're listening now, I really hope uh, you, you get to come back again uh, next Sunday and be here with us and uh, what, what a blessing you were to me and, and for me to be able to speak with you and for all of us here at North Valley. So we hope to see you again. And today we're going to look at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 10. Let's read that. All right, let me read that to you. James writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your, is not the source your pleasure that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he, has, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Clearly, the theme of this section is worldliness. Worldliness. James uses that term world twice in verse 4. He talks about friendship with the world as being hostility toward God. And there's various ways in which that term can be used throughout Scripture. But here, James is using this term as it can refer, that it refers to what our earthly circumstances offer us uh, that opposes God. It's similar to how John uses the term in 1 John 2.15 when he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And that's how James is, is using this term 
here as well. We Christians have been separated from our former relationship with the sinful world. We once walked according to the course of this world, but we escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust, so we're no longer of the world, are we? No, we've overcome the world by faith. In baptism, we were crucified to the world, and the world was crucified to us, so that we died to the elementary principles of the world. Yet there is always a danger of a Christian falling back into the ways and corruption of the world, as did Demas over in 2 Timothy 4, who loved this present world, right? In chapter 3, uh, the previous section of James, in verses 13 to 18, he, James was contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom from above. He now seems to be indicting his readers as following the wisdom of this world when he asks that that question in verse four, verse 1 of chapter 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Apparently, those receiving this epistle were in a state of disharmony. This, to James, was evidence of worldliness. Quarrels are not the problem here, are they? is it? Not at all. This is only a symptom of the problem. And this is how we're going to break this section up. Verses 1, uh, one and 2, I think, yeah, 1, 2, and 3, that's going to be the symptoms of worldliness. Then he's going to talk about the source of worldliness and then the solution to worldliness. And we'll look at all that, hopefully, in our lesson today. And so James answers that initial question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, with the rhetorical question, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. That external conflict between brothers is a result of worldly desires within them. And so James uses that term pleasures. It's synonymous with the word lust. It means to have selfish desires or, or, or feelings that, you know, please only themselves. And, and you see that word members there. And that's not talking about other Christians. I know it's easy for the mind to go that way, but rather it's talking about parts of the body. James used the term earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, and, and sin is so powerful that it can utilize the members of the physical body not only to exhibit itself, but also to wage war with others. I like what Linsky writes about this. He says, quote, Paul also speaks about the vicious uh, law that still operates in my members. Like James, he views the body and its members as territory in which the power of sin, after being ousted from the throne in the spirit, still maintains itself, end quote. And of course, the tongue, as James already used in chapter 3, would be a primary weapon, right, in such quarrels and conflicts. So you can see that's, the, that's one of the members sin uses. The selfish desires of these Christians are using the members of their bodies to engage in conflict with one another. And then verses 2 and 3. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. James is saying that their lust is what is driving them to the actions they take. Their selfish desires are not being satisfied. This could mean a desire for various material things of this realm, but likely it means that they desire to get their way. And things are not going their way. So their reaction is to fight. 
Now, James is not suggesting literal murder here, not, not at all, not in the physical sense. There's more than one way to commit murder, right, in a figurative sense. James uses the strong term murder in order to get their attention, to get the attention of their reader, of his readers, and to let it sink in just how far off they've gone. We may kill off someone in the use of our tongue by discouraging them or by slander or by means of other verbal attacks. James ends, verse 2, with the statement, You do not have because you do not ask. And he elaborates in verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Why? So that you may spend it on your pleasures. The asking seems to be in reference to prayer, and James condemns them for fighting rather than praying for what they want. One who is intent on getting his own way would not consider petitioning God, since prayer is a submission to the will of God. Yet, when they finally decide to pray, they ask with selfish motives, for which God will not grant positive answers. The purpose behind these requests to God does not have in mind godly results. That's the, uh, the symptoms of worldliness. And if you've got those kind of symptoms in your life, well, red flags, right? But what, are the real, what is the real source of the worldliness here? Those are, if those are symptoms, what, what's causing this? Well, that, that's verses 4, 5, and 6. And James indicates the, the great problem of worldliness. It is described here in verse 4 as spiritual adultery. When he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The church, of course, is viewed as the bride of Christ. So when we are unfaithful to our husband, we commit spiritual adultery. It is like a woman who is married to one man but prefers the company of other men. We are just as unfaithful if we put the things of this world as a priority over our relationship with the Lord. And then James expands on this, on this spiritual adultery imagery, by speaking of God's jealousy in verse 5 when he says, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. What God wants is really what every husband wants in a wife. He is not looking for merely a faithful wife, but also a bride in love with him. That term spirit, I don't think that's referring to the Holy Spirit in the sense that some have used the passage to refer to an indwelling of the third person of the Godhead. I think spirit here is the human spirit, consisting of the mind and heart of a Christian, God wants us to give our whole selves to him, not just our behavior, but our entire inner man, just like in Malachi. You may remember if you've read that recently, in Malachi where it talks about the Jews are coming to bring their sacrifices uh, to the Lord, and they're doing everything right externally. They're, they're obeying the law and that they're giving these sacrifices, but in their heart, Malachi points out, you know, they do it loathsomely. They don't want to do it. It's a burden to them. They'd rather be doing other things. And so God says, you know what? Keep your sacrifices. Don't give them. I don't want it. But they were doing everything right on the outside. But God didn't have their heart. They weren't giving their heart over to God, the spirit of man. And so he told them, forget it. 
And that's what he's saying here. God wants the heart. He wants us from the inside out. Now, verse 6 presents a kind of, kind of a challenge for us here uh, where the scripture reads, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is this greater grace? Well, some, some have suggested that it is greater grace than the world offers us, and so a motivation to be faithful to God. Others say uh, that greater grace just means that God gives favors of all kinds, and James is stating what his friendship toward us, uh, God's, uh, his friendship, that is God's friendship toward us, means to us. And so James utilizes a scripture quotation uh, at Proverbs 3.34, and the sense of the word proud there, when it says God is opposed to the proud, is simply one who sees himself above others. So to seek friendship with the world over God, that's kind of an exhibition of arrogance, right? Pride in the things of the world is a hindrance to one's pursuit of God. Such an individual sets himself above the will of God and has enthroned self as his God. As the scripture teaches, those who arrogantly set themselves in opposition to God are cut off from his grace. Only when they return to him in humility will they again become the recipients of his unmeasured favor. So, James may be saying that it is a greater grace in the sense that God is willing to forgive whenever his people repent. We received his grace in his giving us life and a spirit made in his image. We did not deserve such a gift. It is by grace that we have life. Then we sinned, right, and failed him. But we are again the recipients of his grace if we repent and return. It may be that James is saying that when God made our human spirits dwell within us, it was by his grace that we received life. Yet, when we sinned, we initiated an even greater grace by providing uh, he initiated, I'm sorry, he initiated an even greater grace by providing the means whereby we could be welcomed back into his fellowship, even though we're not perfect. The original grace God gave us was before we had done anything good or bad. Yet the grace of salvation is given because we had done wrong. So it is greater, right? Greater grace. This seems to me to be more likely, or a better understanding of the concept. Other interpretations have merit too, but you know, I don't know. Think about that. It's kind of like makes me think about Nebuchadnezzar when he came out on that patio in Daniel, the book of Daniel. And he looked at all his kingdom and he thought, "Oh man, look at all that I have accomplished!" And so God cursed him because he didn't give glory to God until he came to his senses. Anyway, so that's the source of worldliness. It's our arrogance, isn't it? It's us, the inner man. So if you have these red flags, you, you see the symptoms, you, you recognize the source, what's the solution to worldliness? What, what do we do about this? Well, that's verses 7 through 10. He gives us a, uh, James gives us a seven-fold listing of ways in which we may combat worldliness in our lives. And that number seven, that's interesting, he uses seven 
because that's the number that Jews understand as being God's will for man on earth. I'm not going to get into why that is. That's in other programs. But if you're interested, you can always ask me about that. Email me or come up here to North Valley and ask. But let's take a look at these seven. The very first one found in verse 7 says this. Submit to God. Here's the first solution. Submit to God. Submission is a characteristic of humility, complete opposite of arrogance, which is one of the sources of worldliness. So submitting to God means to place ourselves under the authority of God so that we obey his will instead of our own. It means to yield our own will to that of another. From a practical standpoint, we submit to God's will by following his word. So, this will keep us from falling prey to the allurements of the world if we submit to God. Number two, resist the devil. The word resist assumes that Satan will attack, right? And, and, and the tense of this verb implies that we can, we can successfully withstand the devil, although it will require our fighting him off. And so this roaring lion, as Peter describes him, is actually a, a cowardly wimp whenever you stand your ground and resist his attacks. And James notes that he will flee from you. But you better have the armor on, right, the, from Ephesians 6.10. That's all we need to put the devil on the run. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Number three, draw near to God. Draw near to God, verse 8. Now, drawing near, that was an expression used of the priests of the Old Covenant. When, you know, in their priestly work of offering sacrifices, they were first to consecrate themselves before coming to the temple or, or to the altar of God. And the Hebrews writer also picks up on this concept, and he encourages Christians to draw near to God in, in this same priestly manner. Drawing near suggests movement on our part. <clears throat> if you recognize the symptoms and the source of worldliness, that means you recognize that you've moved away from God. So, now we need to move back. It is the desire for, clo- for a close, intimate relationship with God. And he responds by drawing nearer to us. So, we may, in a practical way, make this movement toward God through prayer, right? Through the study of Scripture and engaging in the worship assemblies, and in many other ways. But those are the, are the basics right there in a practical way. And, and you know, um, kind of an excursus, I guess, on this, uh, one other thing to draw near to God is to remember some of the things that Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. In fact, let me turn my Bible over there to Philippians 4, to what I'm thinking of. There where he says in Philippians 4, 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Your your gentle spirit. Not not an arrogant spirit. Not a worldly spirit, but one that is focused on God. And how do you do that? Verse 6, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, here's here's the, the key right here. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I do that. There are times when there there are struggles in my life, and if I focus too much on those things and all the bad, and, and my mind tends to go through scenarios of what if this happens, what will I do? What if this happens, what will I do? And I just get more frustrated and anxiety builds up. I need to focus on the good. I think about, okay, what have these people done that have been good to me? And that helps me look at peace rather than think of them as being my enemy. What have uh, this person or that person or, or I have done that, that's positive or the things that God has put in my life that they encourage and strengthen me and I think and I draw upon those things and I draw nearer to God and he draws nearer to me. So that's number three. Number four, back over in James, chapter four, verse eight. Another solution to worldliness is cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now, there's a parallel with the next phrase when he talks about purify your hearts, you double-minded. We'll get to that in a second. But here with cleansing your hands, cleanse uh, uh, first carried the idea of a ceremonial cleansing, but here it's more of a moral cleansing, right? Today we might say, oh, my hands are clean, indicating innocence or purity. Hands makes us think of what we do outwardly because hands are so often employed in the external deeds. If these need cleansing, the hands, the implication is that they are stained with sin. Practically speaking, this seems to be an admonition to quit doing sinful deeds. Stop it, is what he's saying. And then purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's number five there in verse eight also. Purify has the sense of being unmixed, as in pure gold, where there's no impurities. Hearts has to do with the inner man. That is the seed of our thoughts and our will. It is here that we should be unmixed. We should be pure, being fully devoted to the Lord in our hearts. Double-minded, literally that's the term that means two-souled. It describes a man who's trying to live that double life with one foot in the world, right? And one foot in the church and that relationship with the Lord. James talks about that in James 1, 7, where he says such a man is unstable in all his ways. He's he's wishy-washy, tossed to and fro, dual allegiance. Jesus said, no man, no man can serve two masters in Matthew 6, 24. So we must make a choice of allegiance. In a practical manner, James is calling for repentance, which is a change of heart. It is a call to make a decision of the heart and a commitment to turn loose from the desires of the world and fully give oneself to God. Number six, be miserable, mourn, and weep. James is not suggesting that Christianity is a matter of gloom and agony and doom, stuff like that. He is speaking of the proper attitude toward one's sinful condition. Here is the heart of the humble man. And James continues, Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. All right, now, such laughter and joy refers to the attitude that you might have in giving yourself over to the pursuit of the world. Okay, that's what he's talking about, that kind of laughter and joy, which has no serious regard for sin. 
to the world, sin is mere pleasure without moral consequence. They find joy in it. So James is wanting us to see sin for what it really is, from God's perspective, or from the insight gained through wisdom from above. When we actually see sin as God sees it, it will lead us to mourning over what we have done in opposing the will of God. And finally, James adds, number 7 in verse 10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. This is a decisive act. James wants us to fully, once for all, surrender ourselves to God. To say this is done in the presence of God is to recognize that we are all under that watchful eye of our Creator. While sinners should fear an all-seeing eye, uh, those who are living righteously are grateful for His presence. James is advocating a turnaround for those who have been pursuing the world. These first century Christians needed to change their ways in self-humiliation. Sin is always a self-exaltation, right? Or a prideful rebellion against the will of the one who created us. The good news is that when you humble yourself to him, he will exalt you. We certainly do not deserve his acceptance of us, but he has provided the means by which we can be acceptable. The exalting is a lifting us back into a relationship with God. Some seek only the world's exalting, with such, uh, which is uh, so temporary. But God's exalting will endure forever. James is teaching us in all these verses that true humility is the only way, the only way that we can become acceptable to God. He wants us to choose our friends wisely. To choose the world as a friend, that sets us in opposition to God. And such a choice is made by an arrogant, worldly mindset. There is no future in friendship with the world. Because ultimately, the world comes into judgment by God. So take a look at those things. Take a look at yourself and think about it. Are we worldly? You can know the symptoms. You can see the source. And hey, we here we have the solution in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Thank you for spending your time with me this afternoon. Please find us on our website, www.nbcoc.net, and have a great, wonderful, blessed day. Sitting up to sweep away till she'll dawn the better day. Ring it out. Ring it out, ring it out, ring it out. Till the sinful world be one for Jehovah's mighty son. Ring it out. Ring it out, ring it out. This program was sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ.